0: John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. The Holy Gospel according to St. John. Burkett notes, the fourth and last of the Holy Gospels falls under consideration, namely that it was written by the evangelist St. John, concerning which we have observable, the writer, the occasion, the design and scope of this sublime book. Observe one, the writer of it, St. John, the beloved disciple that lay in the bosom of Christ. He that lay in Christ's bosom reveals the secrets of Christ's heart. St. John, saith St. Austin, drew out of the bosom of Christ the very heart of Christ, and made it known to a lost world. Observe, too, the occasion of St. John's writing of this gospel, and that was the heresy of Ebion and Cerinthus, which denied the divinity of Jesus Christ. When God suffers heretics to vent their blasphemous opinions, he takes occasion from thence to make a clearer discovery of divine truth. We had perhaps wanted St. John's Gospel if Ebion and cerinthus had not broached their heresy against Christ's divinity. Observe 3, the design and scope of this Gospel, which is to describe the person of Christ in his two natures, divine and human, as the object of our faith. This he doth in a sublime and lofty manner, upon which account he was compared by the ancients to the eagle that soars aloft and maketh her nest on high, and so was also called John the Divine. Observe lastly the difference between this and the other Gospels. The other evangelists chiefly insist upon the humanity of Christ and prove him to be truly man, the son of the Virgin Mary. This evangelist proves him to be God as well as man, God from eternity and man in the fullness of time. The other three writers relate what Christ did. St. John reports what Christ said. They recount his miracles. He records his sermons and prayers. In short, the profound mysteries of our holy religion are here unfolded by the beloved disciple, and particularly the divinity and incarnation of our blessed Savior. Chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. Briquette Notes Observe here the person spoken of, Jesus Christ, under the name of the Word. In the beginning was the Word, because God spake to us by him, and makes known his will to us by Christ, as we make known our minds to one another by our words. Again, as our words are the conception and image of our minds, so Christ is the express image of his Father's person, and was begotten of the Father, even as our words are begotten of our minds. For these reasons he is often styled the Word. Observe, too, what the evangelist here asserts concerning the Word, Jesus Christ, even three particulars, namely, his eternal existence, his personal coexistence, and his divine essence. One, his eternal existence, in the beginning was the Word. In the beginning, when all things received their being, then the Word was, and did actually subsist, even from all eternity. Not in the beginning of the gospel state, but in the beginning of creation, as appears from the following words, all things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Which plainly shows that the evangelist here is speaking of the creation, rise, or beginning of all things created. Hence, learn, that Jesus Christ not only ascended to his incarnation, but even before all time and the beginning of all things, he had an actual being and existence. Two, his personal coexistence with the Father. The Word was with God, that is, eternally and inseparably with him, in the same essence and nature, being in the Father as well as with him, so that the Father never was without him. Proverbs 8.22 I was by him as one brought up with him. I was by his side, says the Chaldee interpreter. Learn hence that the Son is a person distinct from the Father, but of the same essence and nature with the Father. He is God of God, very God of very God, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made. The Word was with God. Three, his divine essence. The Word was God. Here St. John declares the divinity as he did before the eternity of our blessed Savior. He was with God and existed in him, therefore he must be God and a person distinct from the Father. The word was God, so say the Socians, that is, a God by office, not by nature, as being God's ambassador. But the word God is used eleven times in this chapter in its proper sense, and it's not reasonable to conceive that it should be here used in an improper sense, in which this word in the singular number is never used throughout the whole New Testament, Dr. Whitby. Learn here that the eternity, the personality, and the divinity of Christ are of necessity to be believed if we will worship him aright. Jesus tells us, John 5.23, that we must worship the Son even as we worship the Father. Now, unless we acknowledge the eternity and divinity of Christ, the second person, as well as of God the Father, the first person, we honor neither the Father nor the Son. There is this difference between natural things and supernatural. Natural things are first understood and then believed, but supernatural mysteries must be first believed and then will be better understood. If we will first set reason on work and believe no more than we can comprehend, this will hinder faith. But if after we have assented to gospel mysteries we set reason on work, this will help faith. Verse 3, All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Burkett notes, Observe here the argument which St. John uses to prove Christ to be God. It's taken from the work of creation. He that made all things is truly and really God. But Christ made all things, and nothing was made without him. Therefore is Christ truly and really God. Here observe one, an affirmation of as large and vast an extent as the world. All things were made by him. Not this or that particular being, but all created beings receive their essence and being from Christ. Observe two, that to prevent the least imagination of any things having another author other than Christ, Here is the most positive and particular negation that can be that without him was not anything made that was made. Not without him as an instrument, but without him as an agent. Christ being a co worker with the Father and the Spirit in the work of creation. He was an author of creation, not an instrument in creating. Learn thence that Christ, as God, being the creator and maker of all things himself, is excluded from being a creature or anything that was made verses 4 and 5. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shineth in the darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. Burkett notes, here we have a farther proof of Christ's divinity and an evidence that he had a being as God before his incarnation. For as much as life is centered in him, communicated by him, and derived from him, in him was life, Life was formerly in Christ as the subject of it, and also causally in him as the fountain of it. Learn, one, that Christ is author and dispenser of all life unto his creatures. He is the original life in the order of nature, because by him man was created. Genesis 1.26 He is spiritual life in the order of grace. John 14.6 I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is eternal life in the order of glory. 1 John 5.20 This is the true God and eternal life. Learn, too, that all creatures receiving light and life from Christ, not as an instrument, but as a fountain from which it floweth, and in which it is preserved, is an evident proof of his divinity and an argument that he is truly and really God. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Verses 6-9 There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness, to bear witness of the light, that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. Burkett notes, Here the evangelist proceeds in declaring Christ to be really God, because he was that original, that essential light, which had no beginning, suffers no decay, but is so diffusive, and in some kind, and in some measure or other, to enlighten every man that cometh into the world. Some of the Jews had a conceit that John the Baptist was the promised Messiah, as appears by Luke 3.15. The people were in expectation, and all men mused in their hearts of John, whether he were the Christ or not. Here, therefore, to undeceive the Jews, the evangelist adds that John was not that light. John was a great light, a burning and a shining light, but not such a light as the Messiah was to be. John was a light instrumentally, Christ efficiently. John was a light enlightened. Christ was a light enlightening. John's light was by derivation and participation. Christ's was essential and original. John's light was the light of a candle in a private house, in and among the Jews only. But Christ's light was the light of the sun, spreading over the face of the whole earth. This is the true light, that lighteth every man that cometh into the world. That is, he enlightens all mankind with the light of reason, and is the author of all spiritual illumination in them that receive it. Christ is called a light in regard of his office, which was to manifest and declare that salvation to his church, which lay hid before in the purpose of God, and he is called the true light, not so much in opposition to all false lights, but as opposed to the types and shadows of the mosaical dispensation. Learn 1. That every man and woman that comes into the world is enlightened by Christ in some kind and measure or other. All are enlightened with the light of reason and natural conscience, some with the light of grace and supernatural illumination. Learn 5. That Christ being the essential, original, and eternal light, enlightening and enlivening the whole creation is it evidence, an undeniable demonstration, that he is truly and really God. Verses 10 and 11. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. Burkett notes, he was in the world, that is, he that was God from eternity made himself visible to the world in the fullness of time. The evangelist repeats it again, that the world was made by him, to show his omnipotency and divinity, and then adds that the world knew him not, as an evidence of the world's blindness and ingratitude. Learn hence, that notwithstanding, the eternal Son of God appeared in the world, and the world was made and created by him, yet the generality of the world did not know him, that is, did not own and acknowledge him, did not receive and obey him. They neither knew him as a creator, nor accepted him as a mediator." Yea, he came to his own, that is, his own kindred and country, the church and people of the Jews, but the generality of them gave him cold entertainment. It was the sin of the Jewish nation that though they were Christ's own peculiar people, his own by choice, his own by purchase, his own by covenant, by kindred, yet the generality of them did reject him, and would not own him for the true and promised Messiah. Learn hence, that the Lord Jesus Christ met with manifest and shameful rejection, even at the hands of those that were nearest to him by flesh and nature. John 11.5 Neither did his brethren believe on him. Verse 12 But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believed on his name. Burkett notes That is, although multitudes rejected him, yet some received and owned him for the true Messiah. And those that did so, he advanced to the high dignity of adoption and sonship, giving them power, that is, right or privilege, to become the sons of God. Here note one, the nature of justifying faith declared, as many as received him. Now this receiving of Christ implies these three things. One, the ascent of the understanding to that divine testimony which the scripture gives of Christ. Two, the consent of the will to submit to Jesus as Lord and King. 3. The affiance and trust of the heart in Christ alone for salvation. For faith is not a bare credence, but a divine affiance, and such an affiance in Christ and reliance upon him, as is the parent and principle of obedience to him. Note 3. That it is the high and honorable privilege of all such as receive Christ by faith to become the sons of God by adoption. This is a precious privilege, a free privilege, an honorable privilege, an abiding privilege, and calls for all possible returns of gratitude and thankfulness, of love and service, of duty and obedience, of submission and self-resignation. Verse 13, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Burkett notes, Because the bragging Jews did much boast of their natural birth and descent from Abraham as being his blood and offspring, therefore it is here asserted that men become not the children of God by natural propagation, but by spiritual regeneration. They're not born of blood. Grace runs not in the blood. Piety is not hereditary. Religious parents propagate corruption, not regeneration. Were the conveyances of grace natural, good parents would not be so ill-suited with children as sometimes they are. No person, then, whatsoever has the gracious privilege of adoption by the first birth. They are not born of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. That is, no man, by the utmost improvement of nature, can raise himself up in this privilege of adoption and be the author and efficient cause of his own regeneration. Learn hence that man in all his capacities is too weak to produce the work of regeneration in himself. They, says Dr. Hammond, who by the influence of the highest rational principles, live most exactly according to the rule of rational nature, that is, of unregenerated morality, are the persons here described. Learn, too, that God alone is the prime efficient cause of regeneration. He works upon the understanding by illumination, and upon the will by sanctification which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Verse 14. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Briquet notes, The evangelist, having asserted the divinity of Christ in the foregoing verses, comes now to speak of his humanity and manifestation in our nature. The Word was made flesh. Where note our Savior's incarnation for us. Two, his life and conversation here among us. He dwelt or tabernacled for a season with us. In the incarnation or assumption of our nature, observe one, the person assuming, the Word, that is, the second person subsisting in the glorious Godhead. Observe two, the nature assumed, flesh, that is, the human nature, consisting of soul and body but why is it not said the word was made man, but the word was made flesh? Answer, to denote and set forth the wonderful abasement and condescension of Christ, there being more of the vileness and weakness and opposition to spirit in the word flesh than in the word man. Christ taking flesh implies that he did not only take upon him the human nature, but all the weakness and infirmities of that nature also. Sinful infirmities and personal infirmities excepted he had nothing to do with our sinful flesh. Though Christ loved souls with an infinite and insuperable love, yet he would not sin to save a soul. And he took no personal infirmities upon him, but as such are common to the whole nature, as hunger, thirst, weariness. Observe 3, the assumption itself. He was made flesh. That is, he assumed the human nature into a union with his Godhead, and so became a true and real man by that assumption. Learn hence that Jesus Christ did really assume the true and perfect nature of man into a personal union with his divine nature and still remains true God and true man in one person forever. O blessed union! O thrice happy conjunction! As man, Christ had an experiential sense of our infirmities and wants. As God, he can support and supply them all. Note farther, too, as our Savior's incarnation for us so his life and conversation among us he dwelt or tabernacled amongst us the tabernacle was a type of christ's human nature one as the outside of the tabernacle was mean made of ordinary materials but its inside glorious so was the son of god two god's special presence was in the tabernacle there he dwelt for he had a delight therein in like manner dwelt all the fulness of the godhead bodily in christ and the glory of his divinity shined forth to the eye and view of his disciples, for they beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. That is, whilst Christ appeared as a man amongst us, he gave great and glorious testimonies of his being the Son of God. Learn hence, that in the day of our Savior's incarnation, the divinity of his person did shine forth through the veil of his flesh, and was seen by all them that had a spiritual eye to behold it and a mind disposed to consider it. We beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. Verses 15 through 18. John bare witness of him, and cried, saying, This was he of whom I spake. He that cometh after me is preferred before me, for he was before me, and of his fullness have all we received, and grace for grace. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. No man has seen God at any time, the only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. Burkett notes, Here we have John Baptist's first testimony concerning Christ, the promised Messiah, and it consists of four parts. One, John prefers Christ before himself as being surpassingly above himself he that cometh after me is preferred before me, that is, in the dignity of his person and in the imminency of his office, as being the eternal God. Now among them that were born of women, there was not a greater than John the Baptist. If Christ then was greater than John, it was in regard of his being God. He is therefore preferred before him, because he was before him, as being God from all eternity. Learn hence, that the dignity and eternity of Christ's person as God Sets him above all his ministers, yea, above all creatures, how excellent soever. He that cometh after me in time is preferred before me in dignity, for he was before me even from all eternity. 2. John prefers Christ before all believers, in point of fullness and sufficiency of divine grace. Of his fullness do they receive. They have their failing, Christ has his fullness. Theirs is the fullness of a vessel. His is the fullness of a fountain. Their fullness is derivative. His fullness is original, yet also ministerial, on purpose in him to give out to us, that we may receive grace for grace, that is, grace answerable for kind and quality, though not for measure and degree, as a child in generation receives its parent member for member, or as the paper in the printing press receives letter for letter, and the wax under the seal receives print for print, So, in the work of regeneration, whatever grace is in Christ, there is the like for kind stamped upon the Christian soul, all the members of Christ being made plentiful partakers of his spiritual endowments. Learn hence that all fullness of grace, by way of supply for believers, is treasured up in Christ and communicated by him as their wants and necessities do require. His fullness is inexhaustible. It can never be drawn low, much less drawn dry. Of his fullness do we receive grace for grace. That is, grace freely, grace plentifully. God grant that none of us may receive the grace of Christ in vain. 3. John prefers Christ before Moses, whom the Jews doted so much upon. The law was given by Moses, not as the author, but as the dispenser of it. Moses was God's minister, by whom the law which reveals wrath was given to the Jews. But grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Grace, in opposition to the condemnatory curse and sentence of the law, and truth, in opposition to the types, shadows, and ceremonies of the legal administration. Learn hence, that all grace for the remission of sin and performance of duty is given from Christ, the fountain of grace. Grace came by Jesus Christ. The grace of pardon and reconciliation. The grace of holiness and sanctification. The grace of love and adoption even all that grace that fits us for service here and glory hereafter. Christ is both the dispenser and the author of it. Grace came by Christ. Again, for John the Baptist here, verse 18, doth not only prefer Christ before himself, before Moses, before all believers, but even before all persons whatsoever, in point of knowing and revealing the mind of God. No man hath seen God at any time. That is, no mere man hath ever seen God in his essence, while he was in this mortal state. Here God's invisibility is asserted. Next, Christ's intimacy with the Father is declared, the only begotten Son, that is in the bosom of the Father. This expression implies three things. 1. Unity of natures. The bosom is the child's place, who is part of ourselves, and of the same nature with ourselves. 2. Dearness of affection. None lie in the bosom, but the person that is dear to us. A bosom friend is the dearest of friends. Three, it implies communication of secrets. Christ lying in his Father's bosom intimates his being conscious to all his Father's secrets, to know all his counsels, and to understand his whole will and pleasure. Now, as Christ's lying in the Father's bosom implies unity of nature, it teaches us to give the same worship to Christ which we give to God the Father because he is of the same nature with the Father. As it implies dearness of affection between the Father and the Son, it teaches us to place our chief love upon Christ the Son, because God the Father doth so. He who is the Son of God's love should be the object of our love. As God hath a bosom for Christ, so should we have also. The noblest object challenges the highest affection. Again, as Christ lying in his Father's bosom implies the knowledge of his mind and will, it teaches us to apply ourselves to Christ, to his word and spirit, for illumination. Whether we should go for instruction, but to this great prophet. For direction, but to this wonderful counselor. We can never be made wise unto salvation if Christ, the wisdom of the Father, doth not make us so.